All right, but Hebrews chapter 1 is a really fascinating section of Scripture that we find ourselves in because the subject is angels. Now, I, I don't know about you, but there are lots of different beliefs and opinions and, and thoughts about angels that I have heard over my lifetime. Uh, some of them so far out there, I don't even know where they come from. Um, but angels have been just a very popular subject for many, many years. You, you can see all kinds of different television shows about angels, and there have been movies about angels and many books uh, about angels. And all of those um, things in our culture have fed into our minds a, a certain perspective about angels that is largely false, largely untrue. And there are even different religions and religious beliefs about angels. The New Age faith, and I know there's some in here that would testify to this, which is really a combination of self-help and uh, Eastern spirituality and even the occult, uh, it has a strong belief, at least the core of it, in angels, in the spiritual beings, in that they can provide spiritual enlightenment to you so that you can have your God consciousness awakened within you. <laughs> kind of the I idea there. But really, the major problem with it is that the angel is a kinder and more forgiving uh, person to look at than God. You don't have God in his rules, but I believe in spiritual beings, and, and these beings are here for me, and, and it's largely self-focused. Um, is, is really that the purpose of, of angels then? Is, are angels here to awaken the God consciousness in you? I think we talked about that already. We have no way to know God if God didn't speak and first act, because we all live in this, this time and space box. But angels do certainly point us to God, but they are never to be a replacement for him. Other believes that angels are um, sort of these uh, you know, good deed doers that just come to earth right, and just try to help people out, like those shows I'm going to show my age here, but touched by an angel and highway to heaven with Michael Landon. You know, just the angel showed up just the right time because I had a flat tire and I was on my way to work. So thank you, God, for sending the angel. What is the truth about angels? Well, listen, we're going to begin today and I'm taking my time with this because, listen, I don't want anybody walking out of here today and not understanding what we're talking about when we're talking about angels. So we're going to do a bit, a little bit of theology this morning. Sorry about that. Or can I say it this way? Angelology. That's really what we're looking at here. And the reason we have to do that is because the Bible is the authority on angels, and it has a lot to say about angels. If you've read your Bible, you will have noticed that. There are over 100 references just in the Old Testament about angels, and there's over 160 references in the New Testament. And so we need to go to the, the authority, the source on this. So we're taking a short theological course on on angels. Now, if you're going to be taking notes, here's my advice. I'm going to be sort of just answering questions. You could just sort of make, maybe note the question, and I would just note the verse. You're not going to have time to write out the verses because I got a lot of scripture this morning. Maybe just note the reference because we're going to be moving through this this morning. The first question that I'm going to ask is this, what are angels? Hey, what are we talking about when we say that word angels? Are they the uh, little naked cherub babies, the little chubby-cheeked things that we see in the artwork of Raphael, the artist? Or in later artwork of the 19th century, are they those slim, girlish, almost feminine 
beings that we see in artwork? Or are they the more renegade beings that are trained in martial arts that we see in our movies today, right? Those are the, those are the angels today. What are we talking about when we talk about angels, right? First, they are created spiritual beings. Created being the key word, created spiritual beings, meaning they are not eternal. They have not always existed. They had a beginning. Now, I open this morning with reading Psalm 148. I'm going to take you to it again. Look at what we read, Psalm 148, verses 2 to 5. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Angels and hosts are synonymous. They're speaking about the same thing. Angels are hosts and the hosts are angels. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you stars of light. Praise him, you heavens of heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. Here it is. For he commanded and they were what? Created. Created. They were created. All things were created, and that includes the angels. Now, Nehemiah understood this. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6, he said this, You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, there's that word again, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. And that is certainly true because angels are created beings. Now, angels are not only mentioned as angels or hosts in Scripture. They're called a lot of different things. One of the things you'll see along the way when you're reading your Bibles, they're called sons of God. You might see that name in the book of Job when you're reading Job. Another name you'll, you'll see often is holy ones. Maybe you come across that. That's angels. You'll see those in the Psalms. Another one you'll find right here in our passage today is spirits. In fact, look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? They're spirit beings. If you read the book of Daniel, they're watchers. I like that one. And if you read uh, Colossians and Ephesians, they're known as principalities and powers. And so angels are are called a lot of different things in Scripture. But I want to zero in on that word spirits. It happens to be in our passage today because angels are spirit beings. Beings. Now, that's very, very important. What that means is that they don't have flesh and bone, but they do have bodies. So I'm not saying those are the same thing. They don't have flesh and bone, but they do have bodies. Now, how do I know they have bodies? Well, because I talk to angels all the time. No, but we go to Scripture and we see when men do see angels and they see them in dreams or they see them in visions, they see them in forms, in bodies. Let me give an example. We see the famous seraphim. There's a type of angel, a seraphim, in Isaiah chapter 6. Look what he says about this seraphim in in chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. So here we see these wings, but they have a face, they have feet, they're able to fly, they have a form. There's not just a, a, a ball of light, they have a form to them, a body. We also see an angel in scripture called the cherubim. We first meet the cherubim in Genesis chapter 3. This is when man has fallen, he's sinned, they have been exiled from the garden, and we are told that God placed cherubim at the east of 
the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword that turned every which way to guard the way into uh, the Tree of Life. Now, I've seen a lot of drawings about that, and there's always this angel with these wings and holding this flaming sword. Well, it doesn't actually say the sword is in the hand of the cherubim. In fact, it doesn't even say the cherubim has a hand. We're just told the cherubim guard that. So we don't really have an idea about the form of the cherubim from its first appearance in Genesis 3. But we can know something about the form of the cherubim uh, uh, from the tabernacle. Now, remember Moses was given sort of blueprints on how to build the tabernacle of God. That's the place where God would meet his people and he would be worshipped. And he was to, he got these blueprints of how to build that, but also build all the things that go in it. And one of those things was called the Ark of the Covenant. And have you ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? No, it's not a Christian movie. It's a secular movie. But they did study the Bible to see how to design the Ark. And the Ark of the Covenant has, on top of it, two cherubim. Cherubim angels. And they have their, 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 their wings sorry, stretched out over the cover of the Ark, which is also known as the Mercy Seat. And that is where God would meet primarily with his high priest. The ark was taken into the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place within the tabernacle, and there God would meet with the high priest. We learn about this in Exodus 25, 22. He says, There I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. So, There we learn about the cherubim. We know they have wings and they have some kind of a form to them because they were designed over the ark. We also read in Ezekiel and Revelation about these living creatures. Do you love the living creatures? I'll take you to the Revelation passage, Revelation chapter 4, verses 7 to 8. John says this about them. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So those are unique beings. But can you see that there's some kind of a body or form to them? Because John is able to at least say, they look like a, looks like an eagle, looks like a calf, looks like a man. So these are spiritual beings. They have been created. They don't have flesh and bones, but they have uh, bodies. Now, because they're spirit beings, they're invisible to man. They're invisible. These are men that saw them in dreams. They saw them in, in visions. But on special occasions, and listen, special occasions only, man was allowed to see them. Don't you love coming to those passages in Scripture? You think of Balaam on his donkey. That's one of my favorite. Balaam is riding his donkey, and the donkey can see the angel of the Lord with a sword in his hand in front of him. And the donkey's thinking, I don't want none of that. And he's trying to go another way. And Balaam thinks, I've got a rebellious donkey. And he's beating this donkey, and he's hitting this donkey. And so God opens the eyes of Balaam. Do you remember that? And Balaam is able to, uh, to see the angel of the Lord. And when he does, he bows down to the ground. It was a fearful thing to see the angel standing before him. So God allowed him to see in that moment. Now, that's not one of my favorite ones. My favorite one is Elisha. Elisha, if you remember, is being pursued by the Syrian army. He has a servant, and this servant is really stressed because he wakes up one morning, and they're surrounded by the Syrian army. And Elisha says, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And the servant's thinking, 
Elisha's lost it. I don't know what he's talking about. I see one army and one army only. But look at the prayer of Elisha, 2 Kings 6, 17. And Elisha prayed. He said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Could you imagine that? All of a sudden, he saw the other army that was there, and it was the army of the Lord. Angels present. So on special occasions in Scripture, we do find times where men are able to see these spirit beings. It's not a common thing, but it's on occasions. Now, let me go further with that. Why they are spirits, and they appear in, in bodies and dreams, and sometimes they can even be seen. They also have the ability to take on human form. And probably most commonly what you come across is that men coming as uh, angels, sorry, coming as men and talking to men. Uh, I could go on and on. We have tons of examples of that, but let me just pull out a few. You have a, group, uh, a few angels that come to Abraham. Do you remember that when, he, when he, they were coming to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? And that's when Abraham's trying to talk God down about destroying uh, Sodom. But two of those angels go down into Sodom and they are there to get Lot out of Sodom because they're about to destroy it. Now, they are men, as is, is exemplified by the fact that all the carnal men of the city want to go and have carnal relations with those men. But they're angels, but they're men. They appear as men, but we know that they're angelic beings. In fact, they're able to call down fire and brimstone and destroy the city of Sodom. You have examples in the New Testament as well. You think about the angel that appeared at the empty tomb of, of Jesus, and, and, and the women talking to the angels. And yes, you have descriptions of great light emanating from these beings, yet they still had some kind of a, a body there. But let me take you to a special one here in Hebrews, since we're in Hebrews. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Just a glimpse of where we're going to be going. Hebrews 13, too. And this is kind of a controversial little passage, but let me just show you real quick. Hebrews chapter 13, well, verse 1 says, let brotherly love continue, which is the theme of what he's talking about, hospitality and love. Verse 2, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, by, by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Do you see that? Now listen, it's not a passage about angels, it's a passage about being hospitable. But the warning there is, if you, if you don't, if you're not hospitable, you might have missed out an opportunity to entertain an angel. Now, would you know that you entertain an angel? From this passage, it's not. It says unwittingly. Why? Because they would come as a man. It would come in a form of a person. So interestingly, we find out that angels have all kinds of different forms. We have actual forms that we can see in Scripture, but they can also take on bodily forms. We also know this about angels, that they are organized into ranks. In Scripture, you'll meet this angel, Michael. Michael is called the archangel, isn't he? Now, archangel indicates that there's rule, there's authority that this angel has over other angels. In fact, Daniel calls him the chief of the princes, or one of the chief princes. That's Daniel 10, 13. We'll look at it again. But this angel, Michael, apparently is the leader of the angelic army. And you got a great glimpse of that in Revelation chapter 12. Look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael... And his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. Now, this sounds like almost fanciful. There's a dragon. Listen, in Revelation, the dragon is who? It's Satan. It's Satan. So Satan has angels. God has angels. But the leader of the angels over the army of the angels is Michael, 
the archangel. So he's very uh, powerful. We also know of another angel, and his name is Gabriel. Yep, Gabriel. Now, we don't know his rank, but we know he was a messenger chosen to speak, well, to Daniel, when you read the Old Testament. But also, in the New Testament, he spoke to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. He was the messenger that came to Mary as well. And so we do see that there's different ranks and special um, assignments given to angels. But let me answer this question. When were they created? Oh boy, people have written books on this and debated for years on this. Let me just tell you, like, there, there's no one verse that tells us <laughs> when they were created. But I can say this, at least by the sixth day of creation. Now, there is a hint given to us in the book of Job that possibly they were created before the earth was actually even formed. And it's Job 38. That's where God is sort of talking to Job about, hey, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And he says there, when the morning stars sang together and all of the sons of God shouted for joy. So it kind of sounds like the angels were praising God when he was forming creation. But, you know, Scripture doesn't explicitly say when they were created. But we know that the rebellion by Satan, where, where he and a third of the angels uh, fell, they were cast out of heaven, that happened sometime after day six. And we know that because on day six, God looked at everything that he created and he saw that it was very what? Good. And certainly it would be very good if sin had entered the world and there was a rebellion in heaven and all of that. At that point, his creation is very good. So we know that at least by that point, uh, the angels were created. Now, sometime after that, re- rebellion happened. Satan was cast to earth, and that's why you have the serpent in the Garden of Eden of the whole fall of man. But how many did he create? Well, we don't have a, a, a specific number given here anywhere in Scripture, but we're told that there's too many to count. In fact, Revelation chapter 5, verse 11 tells us this, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. The words are myriads of myriads, meaning they're innumerable. You, you just couldn't count them all. In fact, innumerable is the word Hebrews uses. If you want to turn to Hebrews chapter 12, look at verse 22. Hebrews 12, 22 says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. You can't count them, is what Scripture tells us. So we're told that there are trillions of angels, and they're in the universe. They, they dwell among the heavens, and they're, they're, they're all over the place here. But they are good angelic beings, but they're also bad ones. Scripture calls those demons. Those bad angels, I'll just take a quick moment to just touch on those, because this is not what this is about, but you might as well touch on it. Scripture does tell us that there's three types of of demons. The free demons that are allowed to to freely roam this earth and do the bidding of Satan. Those are the demons that Jesus often came across that inhabited people. And so he was casting out demons from a people. They were free to do uh, whatever they wanted to do. They weren't incarcerated or or limited in terms of, of where they could go. Now, certainly limited in power. We certainly know that from Job, that God really was given permission to Satan to go only go so far. And we have to believe that that is still the same even today. But they are free. I'll just put free uh, demons. But we also know that there are demons that are temporarily confined. Right now, today, there's a place where some demons are being held. But one day, they'll be released to do God's bidding in judgment. In Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, 
Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. Now, this is the bottomless pit, and we'll look at it in a moment, where, where, where Jesus confronted some demons. They were afraid to go there. And this pit is opened up at some point in history to allow demonic beings to come out and inflict pain upon humanity. This will be during the tribulation time, Revelation chapter 9. So they're temporarily confined, but one day they'll be released. But there's a third type of angels, and they are permanently confined. These are angels that, in, in God's uh, opinion, have sinned beyond what he was allowed, they were, they were allowed to, and so he confined them for judgment. In Jude chapter 1, verse 6, you might remember this when we went through the book of Jude, we're told this, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Wow. So to some angels that even sinned beyond the point where God said, that's it, you're done, you're just going to sit there and wait for judgment. That's the ultimate timeout. So that's demons. But how about just some general facts about angels? Well, we do know that angels have personalities because they do speak. When you're reading through the Old Testament and New Testament, angels are coming up and they're actually speaking to people. We know that they show emotions like joy because we hear that, that good angels rejoice when a sinner is saved. In Luke 15, 10, Jesus said, Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so certainly they're able to express joy. They worship with joy. But they're also able to express fear like the demonic angels demonstrated in the presence of Christ. When Christ came across demon-possessed people, those demons knew who they were dealing with, and they expressed fear. In Luke chapter 8, verses 28 and 31, I just kind of combined these two, because we didn't need to read the whole thing, but it says this, When he saw Jesus, this is a demon-possessed man, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. And then Jesus goes on to ask him his name. He says, legion, because there are many. There's a legion of angels in this guy. So that's what verse 31 says. And they, the legion of angels, begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss, the pit, the bottomless pit of Revelation 9. Don't send us there with those other confined angels. I rather like my freedom. And God, Christ in his mercy, did not send them there. They also know that they're very powerful beings. Peter says that they're greater in power and might than any human being is. And, and, and we're also told that they excel in strength. So we know that they're powerful. But listen, they're not omnipotent. Only God is omnipotent. Omnipotent means all-powerful. Their power is limited. They can be hindered, and I'll show you an example in a moment. They're also, I'll kind of combine these two points, they're also very fast. We know that the wings sort of denote the, the idea that they can get from one place to another rather quickly. And even in Daniel chapter 9, Gabriel coming to Daniel uh, is, is mentioning that. And 9.21 says, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, he's an angel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. So yes, angels are very fast. He flew 
swiftly. But listen, they're not omnipresent, meaning they're not everywhere at once. That is an attribute limited to God. God is omnipotent. God is omnipresent. Now, I'm hitting on this because I think a lot of people attribute these God-like characteristics and attributes to created beings. We hear the thing, oh, Satan is tormenting this person. Satan's over there tormenting this person. Satan's over there. Listen, Satan isn't everywhere because he's not omnipresent. He can be in one place at one time. Now, I know usually what people mean by that. They mean their demons or they mean the demonic influence, the satanic influence that is in this world. But some people don't. Some people literally think that Satan is in their closet. And let me just tell you, I doubt you even show up on his radar right? He's probably got bigger fish to fry if you're talking about him personally coming after you. But, but Satan is a created being, and that's my, my point. He's limited in what he can do. Now, we have a great example of this from Daniel chapter 10, a very fascinating section here. Now, Daniel has made an amazing prayer. He wants to know what, what is the future of God's people. And so an angel has been dispatched to tell him. But look what happens. Daniel chapter 10, verse 12. Then he said to me, do not fear, Daniel, For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now this is, this is just mind-blowing. But this angel was dispatched to go and, and minister to Daniel, but he was stopped by a demonic being in Persia. That's what he's saying. And he goes, I couldn't get past the guy. So he, he's fast, but he's not that fast. And he was hindered. His power was limited. He had to get the help of Michael the archangel to defeat this guy and actually get to Daniel's side. So, so at, at, while they are powerful, they're greater than man. Listen, they're not all powerful beings. We know one. His name is God. He has all the power. They're also very, very wise beings, but again, they're not omniscient. They're not all-knowing beings. Again, omniscience belongs to God and to God alone. Don't attribute that um, attribute to an angel. 1 Peter 1.12 gives us a glimpse into that. Speaking about prophets and, and how the, kind of the scriptures came to us, it says, To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you, through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. So, so he's just saying, you know, the Old Testament was written, uh, the prophets were trying to figure out, you know, what it was all about, but they knew it was ministering to, for a people in the future, and angels look at this and say, yeah, that's the gospel, but I don't understand it. They're looking into it. They're trying to figure it out. They're not all-knowing beings. We also know, just another fact about angels, that they cannot marry and they're unable to procreate. And Jesus says that in Matthew twenty-two thirty. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. And so we know that we'll be like the angels when we go to heaven in that we no longer be married or given in marriage. So those are just some facts about the angels. Now, let me just ask this, and we'll kind of end with these points. Why were angels created? Why did God even do that? Well, let me give you four reasons tonight, today, and we'll, we'll end with these things. For, number one, four, four purposes, but the first is that angels are, are given, really, to, to worship and praise God continually. They are, they are beings created for the worship of God. In fact, all of us are. All of us are here to give glory to God. That's your primary focus and your primary purpose is a glory-giving creature. 
That's why you were created. That's Romans 1. You're created to give your creator glory. That's it. And angels are in that as well. You read about them in Job. You read about that idea in Psalms and the Isaiah passage we looked at and certainly in Revelation. But let me give you Revelation 4, 8. We looked at this, but just the end of it said they did do not rest day or night saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Day and night, day and night, just constantly worshiping, worshiping, worshiping the Lord. That's their primary purpose. And our lifestyle should be similar to that we're created for worship. Now, let me just add something on this. Angels were created to worship and serve God, but they weren't created to be worshiped. And I think a lot of angel worship does happen. Angel worship certainly happens in certain religions and, 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 and different cults and sects. We have to be careful about that. And there's a great warning that we get from John in Revelation 19.10. John is seeing so many amazing things by this angel. This is what he says, and I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. I just want to worship you, angel. He says, no, don't do that. I'm a servant like you. We're both created to worship God, worship him. And that's why in the New Testament, even Paul uh, writes uh, sort of an exhortation to, to not fall into angel worship. In Colossians 2, 18, he says, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. You know what this is? This is a warning against those spiritual leaders that would come to you and say, I have a ministry with angels. I commune with the spiritual realm like you lowlies don't do that. So, you know, it's really a false humility. God he sees my work and I'm so humble that he's seen fit to bestow upon me some great uh, power. And he says, that's false humility. They're vainly puffed up by their fleshly mind. They don't see those things. So don't worship angels. We don't worship angels. We worship God who created angels. That's the first reason they're created. Secondly, angels, they communicate God's message to man. They were messengers. That's what they were created to do as well. They assisted in bringing the law of Moses into uh, well, to, to Mount Sinai. And we'll read about that in just a little bit. But Stephen's speech gives us a glimpse about that. Now, Stephen's in the New Testament, but he is, he is sort of condemning his Jewish uh, leaders and friends because they had resisted the Holy Spirit. In, in Acts 7.51, he says, "...you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears." You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. So you see what he's doing. He said, you've resisted the Holy Spirit. Jesus came to where all the prophets were pointing to Jesus. And, and you've resisted that. And look, you haven't even kept the law that came by the hand of angels. Who are you, people? So angels communicate God's message to man. They brought the law. They also revealed the future to Daniel. They revealed the future to, to John in Revelation. Gabriel announced the births of both John the Baptist and, and Jesus. So they're God's messengers. They come and, and pronounce um, special messages to God's people. Thirdly, and I love this one. Angels minister to believers. They're ministering spirits, we're told in Hebrews 1.14. Look at Psalm 91, 11 to 12. 
For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. We certainly see angels having in Scripture a a dramatic effect on the lives of believers. There's dramatic events where they, they help captives in prison escape, right? We see those things fascinating. We see them rejoicing over the conversion of sinners. And we also see, and I love this, that they're present with the church. Look at 1 Timothy 5, 21. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. He's talking about how to be the church. And he's talking to them, you're, you're, you're before God, you're before Christ, and your testimony is also before angels. And you know what? If we could pray and ask the Lord to open our eyes today, they'd be here. They are here. Now, I'm not going to pretend to like, you know, commune with them. I just know they're here. Why? Because Scripture tells me they're here. They're here amongst the saints. They're here rejoicing when we rejoice and worship Him. That's an amazing thing to think, but it's true. They watch the lives of believers, and they do it with interest, which should be help when we're trying to fight sin in our lives. You ever thought about that? There could be an angel in this room watching me right now. But look at 1 Corinthians 4, 9. For I think that God has displayed us the apostles last as men condemned to death, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. See, our lives are a testimony, not just to men, not just the, the, the natural realm, but to the supernatural realm as well, to angels. Another um, way they minister to believers, and this has significance even now in our time of life, they carry believers away at death to their final resting place. So I know that my father-in-law was with angels and now is in the presence of a Savior. But Jesus tells a wonderful parable of the rich man and that poor beggar named Lazarus. And he says in Luke 16, 22, So it was that the beggar died, and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. So the, the rich man who wasn't a believer died, and he went to a grave. The poor man was a believer, and he was carried by angels. Amazing. Now, even when we read about all this angelic interest in, in people and activity around humans, One question that has come up, and I just want to hit on it really quick, is this idea of personal guardian angels. That has been a popular thing, hasn't it? Oh, my guardian angel. We talk about our guardian angels. I even knew people who named their guardian angels, were so convinced that they had a guardian angel in the room, they named them. Uh, It's like, okay, whatever. Uh, People seek support for this belief really through, mainly through just one statement Jesus makes. There's there's nothing else in Scripture that really holds it up. One statement, I'm going to show you the statement. Matthew 18.10. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So they look at this and say, oh, look at that. Every single person has an angel because he says it's, it's their angels. Now, Jesus' point, first of all, is not to communicate that every little one has a guardian angel. His point is to say that it's ex- extremely serious to treat any believer with any kind of contempt. Do not despise these little ones. That's the point there. And so because both God and the holy angels are concerned for our, our well-being, and angels in particular are ready to act on our behalf when God commands it, uh, they're, they're part of our lives. We're, we're with them, but they're not necessarily specifically assigned to each and every person. 
you know, if that were the case, you know, you, you really have a hard time talking to people who maybe lost, lost a loved one in a car accident. Where was, where was their guardian angel, you know? Was he called away to a more important assignment? You see, it brings, into, uh, it brings some big, big problems. Angels, what we're told in this passage, they watch the face of God and they do his bidding for his people. Uh, I heard one analogy. It's a sports analogy, so I don't know if it'll cross over here. But rather than playing man-to-man defense, it's sort of maybe a zone, more like a zone defense, that there are angels in our presence and amongst us in, in various aspects. But whether they have an actual guardian angel who follows me wherever I go, it's hard to support that from Scripture. One final thing about angels. Angels also will be God's agents in the final earthly judgment and the second coming. We do know that they're going to be part of that. We're told that in in Matthew 24 that they'll call forth the elect with a loud trumpet. We know that uh, they'll separate the wheat from the chaff. The book of Revelation tells us that they open the seals, they blow the trumpets, they pour off the bowls, uh, the wrath uh, from the bowls of wrath. Um, And they're also going to execute the judgment against Satan and his servants. You get to Revelation 19, and they're a part of all of those uh, things as well. Now, that took a lot of my prep this week. You might go, why all this introduction about angels? Why are we talking about that? Well, because the author of Hebrews here is writing to correct some of the Jewish misconceptions about angels. Now, remember that this is a group of persecuted Christians. They're they're Jews. They're in danger of going back into Judaism, back into the, the law. And the author's been trying to elevate Jesus in their minds to show them that that Jesus is better than anything that they're going to hope to go back to. He doesn't want them going back. And in fact, if you just think about what we've covered so far, he has just demonstrated in these opening verses that Jesus is the inheritor of all things, that he created all things, that he is the radiator of God's glory, that he's a representer of God's nature, he is the sustainer of all things, he is the purifier of all the saints, and he is the ruler of the universe. That's how he has set up Jesus. But why the subject about angels? Well, most Jews believe that angels were extremely important to the Old Covenant. And I kind of mentioned this already. In the Jewish mind, they were the highest created being next to God. It was God and then angels. So they held them in really high esteem. Some believe that angels even acted like a senate or a council because when you read in Genesis 1, where God says, let us make man in our image. They believe that he was talking to sort of a council of angelic beings. We know instead that that was actually the Godhead, the Trinity, speaking within itself. Some believe that angels presided over the movements of stars and the powers of the seas and the succession of days. You had an angel of death and all these different things. But all of, of all their beliefs, the most significant by far was what they believed about the Old Covenant that angels brought that to man and mediated it. I'll show, I showed you part of that in Stephen's sermon, but remember that he said that they received the law by the direction of angels. But let me show you Galatians 3.19. Now, this is what Paul writes about it. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. 
And so we're just told that the angels were just part of the, establish, the bringing and establishing of the old covenant, which, which these Jews held in high regard. They exalted uh, that, and they were a key role in that. So what the writer is trying to show is that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. A new covenant has made been made. It's better than the old. And so if he, he's trying to show that, then he also needs to show that Jesus is better than angels, which is, we finally come to the title of today, Jesus is better than angels, uh, part one, because we're not going to get very far. So let's look at the passage. We'll read all of it today, but we won't get through all these verses today. We'll look at verses four to 14, verses four to 14. Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits? And his minister is a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up and they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word to us today, Lord, and for the time to just, uh, Search your word to see what you, you say about angels. And Lord, I just pray now that as we, we start to just uh, scrape the surface of this passage, Lord, that we would understand how great and mighty Jesus is, that he is indeed better than the angels, Lord, that he would be lifted up in our hearts and our minds, and also that we would see the importance of understanding this truth. So guide us into this truth, Lord, that we might better know how to glorify you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the author is going to highlight five ways in which Jesus is better than the angels. We're not even going to touch close to five of them today, just one. But just to give you them, we're going to see that he has a better name than angels, better better honor than angels, a better nature, better existence, and a better destiny. So those are the things that will be coming our way. But the first one is this, a better name. He has a better name. Draw your attention back to verse 4 again. Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now notice, first of all, that this is the first time the word better is used. I told you better is a theme of this book. That's why I titled the whole thing, Jesus is Better. Um, And this is the first time it appears here. The author will use it 12 times. The word better is kriton, and it means more excellent. So Jesus is really much more excellent than the angels. That's what that verse is saying. Now, why? Why is he much more excellent than the angels? Look at that verse because it says he has become better by obtaining a better name. Now, first, let's deal with a difficult issue here. And by the way, I should have mentioned this at the beginning. The kind of stuff we're going to be going through, I did say this at the introduction a couple weeks ago, Hebrews is hard. 
and we're going to get some deep stuff. And this is deep stuff, folks. This is solid food, not milk. So just stick with me as best you can. Trust the Holy Spirit. Let's deal with this first part, this phrase, having become. Now, that is huge because cults and other religions will point to this verse to prove that Jesus is a created being. Because in your King James Bible, if you have one before you, it says being made. And so the verse will then say, being made so much better. And they'll take you there and say, look, Jesus was made. He was made much better, and therefore he's a created being. But the word is not poieo, which is to create. The word there is ginomai, which is to become. Jesus became so much better than the angels. And he did it by obtaining a better name. Now, Jewish thought believed that a person's name revealed his nature. So what name did Jesus obtain? Now, we're going to move on to that, but we'll come back to verse 4. We find it in verse 5. Look at verse 5. For To which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, the writer is, is, is really asking two rhetorical questions here, isn't he? One, he says, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I begotten you? That's a quote from the Old Testament. To the other one is another quote from the Old Testament, to which of the angels did God ever say, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now, the answer to this rhetorical question is none. To no angel, to no other angel did he say, you are my son, I'm your father, none. They are generically referred to as sons of God, as you and I are his sons. But no angel was ever given the name son. Now, this is so important as we look at this. This is a title. Angels are created beings. They are servants. They are messengers created to give God glory to do his bidding. But only Christ is son. That's the name that he has over angels. They're servants. He is son, and it's certainly better to be a son than a servant. You think about that prodigal son who went off and squandered his inheritance. He came back and he said, what? I'm not worthy to be your son. You can, be, you can call me a hired servant. He realized that. So the writer has taken us to two Old Testament passage, passages to make a point. Let's look at the first one. I need to take you to the passage, and then it will make a lot more sense. It's a quote from Psalm chapter 2. So we turn to Psalm chapter 2 real quick. Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. Now, he's quoted specifically verse 7, but I need you to look at the context here. We're going to kind of look at all of this. It's a wonderful psalm. And Psalm chapter 2 begins here with the, uh, the nations raging, okay, raging against God. Verses 1 and 2, why do the nations rage? The people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. They're raging, they're plotting against who? Well, it's against the Lord, it says, and against his anointed. Now look what it says, Lord. When you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is Jehovah, that is Yahweh, that is God the Father, that is the Old Testament God of the covenant. Notice what it says, against the Lord and against his anointed. Who is the anointed? Anointed is Messiah. You see, both are mentioned here. The rulers of the world are against both God and Son. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. It's It's a rejection of God's authority, a rejection of God's sovereignty. Do you see that? Okay. So what we see here is the Lord's, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord's response to the nations 
Verse 4, he who sits in heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision, and then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet, this is the Lord speaking, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Now, this is, you got, this is deep stuff. God is saying, that, yeah, first of all, that's laughed. I'm, I'm going to laugh at you, nations. So you can do whatever you want. But I've set my king on my holy hill. Now, this is the picture. I have a king that's going to do whatever he wants, and he's going to rule however he wants. You can go ahead and try to break the bonds and try to free yourself. Ain't going to happen. I've set a king. I've established him. Does that make sense? And now the king speaks. A different person speaks in verse 7. It is the anointed. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me. Do you see it? Again, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The Lord, God the Father, Yahweh, Jehovah, said something to me, capital M. That's the anointed. What did he say? Well, he tells us, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. It is Jesus Christ sharing with the audience what God has given to him. The nations left, but here's what God said to me. I'm sitting on the throne and I can have anything for my inheritance. Why? Because I am his son. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now this is, this is amazing stuff here. What, what we're looking at here is a decree. This decree he is speaking of is the decree that Christ is son. And the nations and the ends of the earth will be his possession. Now this has nothing to do with Jesus being born. Do you see it there? It has everything to do with him being king, ruler, inheritor, the rights to the ends of the earth. That can't get clearer, can it? Now, now go back to our passage. Go back to verse 4 of Hebrews, and you will see all this come together. <clears throat> verse 4 tells us that he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. There is the key. How has he obtained that name of son? Inheritance. That ties us right back to the first part of this passage where we're told that, the right, that, that he has the, uh, he's the appointed heir of all things. Do you remember that? He's the heir of everything. Now, keep that in your mind. Here is the really cool part. Where have we left Jesus coming up in our study? Where's the last place we saw him before verse 4? Sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We've got to keep the context. Jesus has finished his work. He sat down, and he's at the right hand of the majesty. And now the author says, so he's become so much better than the angels because when he sat down, he by inheritance he obtained a better name than they. And I'll take you to the Old Testament to show you. He says, you are my son. Do you see that there? And listen, Paul tells us that that Jesus' resurrection and his ascension fulfilled Psalm 2-7, which is that, that quote. Look at it. It's Acts 13, 32 to 33. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Do you see that? Because Jesus was, was raised, he fulfilled, it fulfilled 
this promise that Jesus is son. Now, while the word today there of Psalm 2-7 refers to the, the declaration, the decree of, of eternal sonship of Christ in eternity past, he has always been, been son, it was fulfilled at the resurrection and ascension. That's when it was fulfilled. That's when it was accomplished. That's why Paul is able to say, God has fulfilled this. It was decreed in time past. It has been fulfilled here. Romans 1.4 is another one that tells us that. Romans 1.4, and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. He is the son. And what declared that? His resurrection and then ascension. So son, stay with me, is Jesus's eternal name that was given to him, declared uh, to be his name, and it was, it was declared as fulfilled in his resurrection and then exaltation. Now, no angel ever had that. <sighs> we got there, right? No angel ever had that. No angel has ever been exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high. No angel has ever been son, and now you have everything. Now, when we understand that, we can understand a much harder word, and maybe you saw it here. That word begotten. Has that word begotten ever begotten you? <laughs> right, you, you? We know that word really well from verses like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, that word begotten has caused a lot of problems over the years. That's another word that, yes, does mean born and can mean born. That Jehovah Witnesses particularly would say, look, he is begotten. He is, he is born. And we also saw these being made. How can you get around the fact that Jesus is not uh, is a created being. He certainly is, they'll say. Well, let's look at it. Let's see if that's really what the author is trying to tell us uh, here. Let me show you a couple other verses where this word begotten appears, because certainly it's there in Psalm 2-7. He says, today I have be- begotten you. Look at 1 John 4-9. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. Now, what the author is trying to tell us is something very simple, that God showed his love toward us, and he did that by, by sending Jesus so that we could have life. Okay, now let me show you another one, John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, you think about these two verses. These two verses are written to tell us who he is not where he came from, not that he was born. We're told that he is God. He is the only begotten of the Father because he is God. Now, let me go a little further with this, and we'll keep unpacking this. There is a creed that was written. It's called the Nicene Creed that wrote the creed to further define what was meant by this word begotten. Here here it is. Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. Begotten of the Father before all the worlds, before creation, okay? God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Begotten, comma, not made, comma, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Begotten, they're saying, does not mean made. It refers to Jesus becoming what? Son. You go back to the decree, You are my son. Today I have decreed this. Today I have begotten you. It stresses the singularity, the superiority of Christ as God and as son 
to inherit all things. It is a kingly title. John 1.18 is a great one. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. Now listen, the oldest, most reliable manuscripts actually say the only begotten God. Doesn't even say the only begotten son, the only begotten God. So the only begotten God, Jesus, who is in the bosom of the father, he, Jesus, has declared him God. Now the author here has really tried to guide us to a direction here. And if you got lost at all, he comes back to an easier verse to make sure he caught the whole audience. And the next verse he quotes, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son, is a quote from 2 Samuel seven fourteen. Everyone would have known it because it is part of the Davidic covenant. Now, the Davidic covenant is so important to the Jew. It is a promise made to David that his throne would be established forever. That's the Davidic covenant. Nathan is talking, he's a prophet, talking to King David about this and that he says, after your death, your son Solomon will build a house for the Lord. That's the temple. But also, God is going to establish a royal throne that would endure forever. Now, Solomon succeeded in one of those things. He built the temple. But did he succeed in establishing a royal throne forever? No, the kingdom was divided that year and it never regained its prominence. No king after that was able to fulfill this. And so what the prophets began to do is they began to look forward to a greater son of David who would fulfill it. And that's what the angel Gabriel, that's what he was celebrating when he announced to Mary. Look at what he announced to Mary in Luke 1.32. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. Notice the son. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. It is a promise that the Davidic covenant will be fulfilled. You have David being mentioned, the house of Jacob being mentioned, but most importantly, he is son, heir. That is the point. Listen, if he was just born of God, what, what, what does that have to do with anything? In fact, if that were what the writer of Hebrews was trying to communicate, he would be defeating his whole argument. He's not trying to tell us that Jesus is born. This is a decree that this Davidic covenant has been fulfilled. Today, I have begotten you. That today took place and was fulfilled when Christ was exalted and seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. So you see, Jesus is superior to angels. He's superior to angels because he's always been God's son. And because two Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled by him at his incarnation, his resurrection, and his exaltation, he has a greater name, and that is Son. Angels, they are simply, simply messengers, simply messengers. And in these last days, we were told, God has spoken to us by his Son, and then the Son has been seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, and his name is above every other name, and even that of the angels. And so when we say that Jesus is son, don't let your mind go to uh, 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 being created, being born. What we are saying is that Jesus is king and that he is great in power. We started today with Psalm 148. I'll take us back to that again. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him all his angels. Praise him all his hosts. 
Praise him, sun, moon, and stars. Praise him, all you stars of light. Praise him, you heavens of heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He also established them forever and ever. He made a decree which shall not pass away. He made another decree. Today I have begotten you. You are my son. And that decree was fulfilled when Jesus was seated at the right hand on high. And so he has a much better name than angels. Let me pray. God, we thank you so much for your word to us today. I pray that nobody was left behind in all that we had to go through today. And I know we went to a lot of deep deep places. But Lord, we trust your Holy Spirit to fill in the blanks, to guide us into truth, Lord, to, to give us just what we need. And Lord, we know we're just starting to come into this argument about angels, Lord, and just beginning to look at why Jesus is better than the angels. He has a better name. Son of God. What does that mean to us? Begotten. He is, he is ruler. He is heir of all things. And that a promise, that decree was given to Jesus so that he would fulfill the promises that were given to man, that there would be a throne that would be established forever. And we know that to be true. Jesus will sit on that throne. Jesus will rule this earth, and Jesus will rule everything. And we praise you for those truths, Lord, as deep and as wonderful as they are. God, may we continue to worship you in in, uh, spirit and in truth today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.